Tonight we're going to finish up uh, Isaiah 43. And over the past few weeks, we've seen uh, Israel, specifically Judah, described as a people who have turned from the Lord. Uh, They refuse to listen to the prophets sent by God. They refuse to see and acknowledge God's working among them. Isaiah is clear. They were given spiritual ears, but they're willfully deaf. And likewise, they were given spiritual eyes, and they're willfully blind. They don't see the Lord working amongst them. Uh, And it's their choice not to hear. And it's their choice not to acknowledge the, uh, the works of the Lord. And that choice, that choice of disobedience, has and continues to have consequences. And those consequences, as we're going to find out, as we already know, uh, lead to their future Babylonian captivity. Uh, God's going to judge that disobedience. Uh, We saw back in chapter 42, uh, God gave them up to the looters and the plunderers because of their disobedience. And we're going to see that again as Judas led off as captives to Babylon. But in the midst of all that, God declares who he is. You remember we saw descriptions like this, that uh, the Lord created you. He formed you. He redeemed you in the past. You're called by his name. You're his no matter where you are or what you may face. The Lord speaks through Isaiah and says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then the Lord continues um, speaking through Isaiah. And he says, you are precious in my eyes, honored, and I love you. And then he continues, says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, they will be gathered together. No one chosen by God, the idea is obviously, no one chosen by God, called by his name, is going to be lost, going to be forgotten, going to be ignored. They're all going to be delivered. They're all going to be saved. Uh, Last week we started, or the last time, we started with this uh, courtroom scene where we saw basically God declare that Israel is his going to be his witness. It's his servant. It's going to be his witness. All right. And he chose them specifically for that purpose. Uh, he had given them the faith to believe and the knowledge and the understanding of who he was. They've experienced the deliverance in the past. During the Exodus is something they always focused on. They have witnessed the fulfillment of his promises. They can attest to who he is the great I am, their Savior. But as we saw in this courtroom scene, they didn't say a word. They remained silent. So to make sure there's no confusion, God reminds them that there were no gods before him. None are going to come after him. He's unique. There's no one like him. There is no other God. He is the only one. He is the only Savior. And then we saw this picture when Judah was faithful, when they were not making strange, false god idols. God said he declared his deliverance of Judah from the Assyrian army and the death of Sennacherib. That should have been fresh in their minds. Why aren't they testifying to the Lord? Because basically they have rejected the Lord. God goes on and declares, I am God. 
And the inference there is what he says stands. What I do cannot and will not be undone. Words were who can turn it back. There's no one who can deliver from his hand. There is nothing God won't do to redeem and sanctify his people. So tonight's going to be a a full night as we finish up uh, chapter 43. And we're going to see in there, God tell Judah the judgment's coming because of their hard-heartedness and their willful rejection of him. However, because they're God's chosen people, their captors are going to be destroyed. And they will be delivered, Judah will be delivered, and there will be mercy in the midst of that judgment. So let's pray and we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight. Father, I pray as we look into your word that uh, your spirit will give us an understanding of, of pieces that we may have read but didn't understand in the way that you wanted us to understand them. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would give us that understanding. Father, I pray that uh, any words that I say that are um, incorrect or, or don't magnify and glorify you, Father, I just pray you put a seal on my lips and those words would never, ever be spoken. Father, I pray that uh, you would just meet with us. Father, it's our desire to, uh, to worship you and worship you in the study of your word. So, Father, I pray as we, as we look into your word that you will reveal more of yourself to us. And, Father, I thank you just for the opportunity for us to all be here, for us to be called together as your children in one place at this moment in time to, uh, to look into your word and to praise you. Father, I thank you for that. It's a, it's a very, very, very special gift. So, Father, just uh, meet with us tonight, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the, the basic concept here in these remaining verses is that the Lord's going to redeem hard-hearted Judah. And we're going to look at that through these verses 14 through 28 in chapter 43. <coughs> and in these verses, we're going to see God promise to deliver Judah from uh, captivity, and he's going to do that by destroying the Babylonian Empire. He's going to promise a new work of redemption. And he's going to promise mercy, if you will, even in the midst of the judgment, even in the midst of the Babylonian captivity. So, Let's read through uh, Isaiah 43, verses 14 through 28, and then we'll start to dig in. Verse 14 starts, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing now. It springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
The wild beasts will uh, honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the, in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. These verses open with basically the Lord telling Judah that Babylon's going to be destroyed. Right? They haven't even attacked, Babylon hasn't even attacked Judah yet. Right? There hasn't been the start of the uh, uh, enslavement, the, the beginning of the exile. But God says that he's going to destroy Babylon. And if you go back to chapter 39, uh, we saw, and here's a quote from 39 verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Okay, we saw that in 39. Babylon showing up, put a present, etc. Right? Isaiah, though, tells Hezekiah about the Lord's judgment on him and on Judah because of this foolishness that he's just done. Uh, you can see that in verses 6 through 8 and 39. It says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Okay, remember that? We talked about that, you know, Nick talked about that a few weeks back. Okay, so what we see here is Babylon was welcomed. Babylon's going to get everything they saw, including all the people. Right, the ones that they don't kill. This exile came about because of Judah's rebellion and disregard for the Lord, if you will. Uh, it's God's judgment on Judah. But Babylon is going to be held accountable for how they treated Judah. Remember, God calls Babylon, all right, 
but they are ruthless, all right? And they are going to be held accountable for how they handled and treated Judah. During this invasion, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, including the temple, totally destroyed. People were murdered or enslaved. And there's a partial description of some of this in Jeremiah. I think the reference is on your sheet there, Jeremiah 25, 8 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land, its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction. This is Babylon coming, invading, destroying, you know, the surrounding nations, right, as they uh, take on Judah. Uh, I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting uh, desolation. Moreover... I will banish from them, this is banished from Judah now, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the uh, words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So we see Jeremiah saying, yeah, you're you're going into uh, exile here because of your disobedience, because of your uh, turning away from the Lord. And that's going to happen. And it's going to be a while. It's going to be 70 years. But when that 70 years goes by, all right, the Lord says, Babylon will be no more. It'll be a wasteland. So as we dig into these verses tonight, starting with 14 through 17, we see this promise that God makes about the judgment of Babylon. So if you look at uh, 14 through 17 again, it says, uh, This says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Now you've got to remember, Isaiah is writing this whole account roughly 45 years or so in that kind of time frame before he dies. Um, It's about 80 years before the first wave of the Babylonian invasion is going to happen. I I believe, if I remember right, there were like three waves of uh, Babylon coming. They would take off some, they would take off some more, and they'd take off some more. So this is all like 80 years out uh, from this point 
on. That means that God's promise to destroy the Babylonian Empire, it means that that's about 150 years in the future from the time Isaiah's writing these things. And Isaiah prophesies here before the Babylonians ever conquered Judah, before the nation was spent 70 years in exile, Isaiah's prophesying all this. And he's prophesying not only about the coming captivity that Judah's going to see, but he's also prophesying about uh, the destruction of Babylon. Judah's reminded again, all right, before this judgment comes, they're reminded that the Lord is their Savior, their Deliverer. He always was and he always will be the Savior and Deliverer of his people. God, described here as the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, is going to outline this plan now that he has to judge Babylon and return the exiles back to Palestine. Uh, over the years, there have been a lot of uh, commentators and stuff that have struggled with uh, some of the wording uh, in these verses. Uh, they puzzle over the idea of Babylonian ships, you know, um, and we'll, we're going to look into that for just a second here. Uh, the, the Hebrew, the, the text word there that describes a nation is casti. Uh, I'm probably saying that wrong, but K-A-S-D-I-Y, uh, often refers to the Chaldeans. That shouldn't be much of a problem for, for you know, commentators and whatnot, because who do we know? Abraham was from where? Ur of the Chaldees, right? So he was from Ur of the Chaldeans, right? So that shouldn't present much of a problem uh, for these guys. The Chaldeans were basically... Uh, a, a group in the southern part of Babylon, okay, which is now modern-day Iraq, basically, was the home of Babylon. And the Chaldeans were a small group in that southern part. They were people that were intelligent, they were business-minded, and they were often warlike. They eventually became, the Chaldeans eventually became the leaders of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean. Uh, the thing that puzzles some of the scholars, though, is they're talking about these ships in which they rejoice. All right, the ships in which the Chaldeans rejoice. Jeremiah writes about the Medes conquering Babylon, and he talks about waterways, which has an assumption there. You got waterways, you probably got ships, right? Uh, Jeremiah 51, 12-13 says, uh, Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by the waters, rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. So we see there Jeremiah talking about the fall of Babylon, basically. Uh, there was a commentary here, uh, Kiel Delich commentary. Probably said all of those words wrong as well. Okay. Uh, and basically their quote was, uh, we know from other sources that the Chaldeans not only navigated the Euphrates, 
remember we were talking about the juncture of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, okay? Uh, and so uh, I'll continue with their quote here. It says, uh, we know from other sources that Chaldeans not only navigated the Euphrates, but the Persian Gulf as well, and employed vessels built by Phoenicians for both commerce and warlike purposes. Apparently God's plan includes the Babylonians fleeing the Medes in their own ships, in ships in which they rejoice. Historically, though, there is no evidence the Medes carried off the Babylonians in the ships uh, they use for commerce. But there is evidence that the Medes in their defeat of Babylon basically built dams. I'll read their quote and then we'll. Uh, in the defeat of Babylon added dams to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers to block access to the uh, Persian Gulf, thus drying up Babylonian commerce. So part of the strategy of the Medes said, well, you, you got these ships coming up the river, all right, they're bringing everything, all right, and they can be warlike ships as well. What we're going to do is we're going to dam off the river so you can't get into the Persian Gulf, okay? That action basically means that Babylonians, if they wanted to escape by water, were doomed. There's no place to go, all right? You, get, you basically get stuck. So escaping the destruction of Babylon through these ships was something that was uh, uh, probably not going to happen. If they tried, they would have been, you know, stuck in the rivers and, and taken out by uh, the Medes. There, there is a strong emphasis in these verses on God's holiness, if you will, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your Holy One. We also see references to God as Israel's creator, where the Lord says the creator of Israel, describes himself as the creator of Israel. These things, I think, link God's actions of his deliverance, of his salvation, links those actions to his character, to his holiness, to his creative power. So we kind of see those things linked together here, if you will. Uh, Israel was God's creation. They were an instru instrument, if you will, uh, of his revelation to the world. That's, that was their purpose, right? Was he chose them. They were his people, and they were to be his spokespersons, if you will, to the nations around them. Right? So they were to reveal to those nations right, who the Lord was. It's this revelation of his holiness, of his character, that's really one of the issues here, I think. Uh, and that's what salvation and judgment are all about here, I think, is if you're unwilling to talk about, if you're unwilling to reveal what the Lord's done, all right, who he is, all right, that's basically being disobedient against what we'd called to do, right? And when you do that, all right. That disobedience leads to corrective action. In the case of Judah, severe corrective action. Right. In verses 16 and 17 here, uh, those I think are pretty obvious a reference to the Exodus, where it says, a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, the destruction of chariot and horse, army and warrior, the deliverance of Israel is depicted here 
in the defeat of Pharaoh's army, basically. Babylon is going to be defeated, but their defeat is going to be extremely easy compared to what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt. It's going to be thorough. It's going to be quick, as the destruction of the Egyptian army was. And the end result that we see here is they're going to be extinguished, quenched like a wick, snuffed out, if you will. Because of Judah's rejection of the Lord, they're going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. This is all going to happen sometime after the death of Hezekiah, because we already know that during his time, he was happy. There's going to be peace during his life. Everything's going to happen after that. So sometime after the death of Hezekiah is when these things start to, uh, start to take place. But in that, God doesn't abandon the faithful remnant. God never abandons his children, never abandons his faithful remnant. He promises to deliver, deliver them for their sake. So God is going to make this promise to the exiles that he has a new work that's coming. If you look at verses 18 through 21, it says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So we've already seen Judah, Israel in general, always making the claim all right, that we will never forget the Exodus. All right, yes, God delivered his people in the past from Egyptian slavery. Absolutely true. Uh, more recently, the example we saw last week in this courtroom scene, more recently, he delivered them from the Assyrians. But here the Lord's saying, don't dwell on the past. Forget the former things. I got something new to consider. Something that's about to happen. Another promise is going to be fulfilled. And the idea is, can't you see it? Don't you see this coming? Do you not perceive it? I, going through this, I was fascinated by the fact that uh, this, this idea, when God asks a question, do you not perceive it? Perceive, basically, is a translation of a Hebrew word that means to know. To know in the sense of to ascertain or know by seeing. I find that question that God asked and who he asked it to, those who have already said were blind, right? He said, don't you see what's happening, you blind people? Right? I find that one of these things in Scripture that you, you look at and you say, this is, this is an interesting combination of things that you're looking at here. God's saying, I've got something new. Can't you see it? Oh, you blind people that I'm talking to, right? That, that idea. Uh, the first time that word, uh, you know, the idea of perceiving, that, uh, uh, that Hebrew word, the first time that we see it in Scripture, all right, is in Genesis 3-5, and it's during the time of Satan 
tempting Eve, right? Uh, Genesis 3, 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we see this, that, that that same word used in the temptation saying, you will know, you will perceive, you will understand, all right, good and evil. Now, of course, Judah, the folks during Isaiah's time, could not know, could not perceive what would happen a century or so in the future. All right. But their knowledge of similar events in the past ought to trigger some kind of recognition, some kind of understanding of the Lord's character. Right? The Lord's been faithful through the years. Right? They should know that. They should have seen that. They didn't personally experience the exodus from Egypt. But they did experience the fruit of it by living in the promised land. Their reaction to Isaiah's prophecy should have been, of course, we remember. This is the way God acts. This is who God is. That was not their response. One commentator expressed some of that this way with these thoughts. He said, often when God makes a promise, we worry about the details or the obstacles for the fulfillment of that promise. God replies to us, don't worry about it at all. I will even make a road in the wilderness. I have resources and plans you don't know about. Leave those problems to me. <laughs> Judah knew of God's promises, but refused to trust him. Uh, that was evident when the Assyrians were showing up. Right? You see this idea, we can handle this. We have political friends. All right? We have might. In that whole process, they didn't honor the Lord. Their disobedience is the reason for their captivity. God reminds them of this when he says, even the wild beasts honor me because of my provision. Basically, why don't you? The wild beasts do that. I, I find when I'm going through things like this in scripture, that the examples are not random, okay? They have, if, if you think about it, they, they all have, everything has meaning, right? So when I started looking at that, I said, okay, we, we mentioned two wild animals here, right? The jackals and the ostrich, all right? So they honor God. They honor God for the water, all right? God's chosen people should honor him for something, but they didn't, all right? The thing that I find fascinating about those two animals, those animals were considered by the Jews to be unclean. Okay? So what you have is you have the unclean animals honoring the Lord for his provision, and you have God's chosen people, all right, dishonoring them by ignoring his provision. I find those kind of contrasts uh, just fascinating to me. As believers, like Israel, we were chosen, we were formed, and the purpose for that was to praise the Lord. All right? They were chosen, they were formed, they didn't decide to praise the Lord for his provision. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Commentary quotes Jerome, 
Okay, give you that. Jerome was a fourth century biblical historian, that kind of time frame. Uh, and he wrote about these verses. He said, uh, I will open a way not merely in the Red Sea, but in the wilderness of the whole world. And not merely one river shall gush out of the rock, but many which shall refresh not the bodies as formerly, but the souls of the thirsty, so that the prophecy shall be fulfilled. With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. That's a reference to Isaiah 12.3. Okay. So his comment was basically along the lines, yeah, God is making provision here, but this provision goes far, far beyond what, we're, what we see as just, okay, a, a river providing water for the wild animals. This is God providing living <coughs> water. This is God's provision for his people. This is the new thing that he's revealing to his people at that point in time. The Lord's ordained and is now announcing this new work. A work that goes beyond simple deliverance okay, of the remnant of Judah and Babylon. It, it points to the ultimate, if you will, deliverance of God's chosen people by the Messiah. All right, Deliverance from sin itself. Matthew Poole had this comment. He said, from all these texts laid together, it appears that this latter deliverance, this new one, that, this new work the Lord's talking about, uh, it appears that this latter deliverance compared with that uh, out of Egypt is not to be confined to their freedom from Babylonish captivity, but to be extended to the consequences of it, especially to the redemption by Christ, because otherwise that Egyptian deliverance was more glorious and wonderful in many respects than the Babylonian. Well, what we'll see, the, the point he's trying to make here is, what we're going to see is that when Babylon falls, it falls quickly, it falls almost without a shot being fired. You know, that, that kind of idea. Uh, and is not very spectacular. I mean, it's dramatic, all right, but it's not very spectacular. And his point is, if we're talking about something that is far better, far greater than the example of God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery of his people, it can't possibly be referring to the Babylonian release of the uh, exiles, because that's not very dramatic. The Egyptian deliverance was dramatic. God must be speaking of something far, far, far more superior than just that. And that's the pointing to Christ and his deliverance of, uh, of God's chosen people. Even with the reminders of God's past deliverance and his promise of a future deliverance the, of the coming Messiah, Judah still remained a hard-hearted and obstinate people. Look at verses... Uh, 22 to 24 here. Uh, This is where the hard-hearted piece comes from. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. 
You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. There's, there's one thing that I think is consistent throughout uh, the Old Testament scripture. Uh, and that is uh, the Jews did not ignore making sacrifices. The only time I think you can find references in the Old Testament where they did not practice sacrifices was when they were captive in another nation and they were prohibited from doing so. All right. They were, I, I was going to say faithful, but faithful is the wrong word. They were consistent in, in making uh, offerings, if you will. So what does God really mean here? It says, you did not call upon me. You did not bring sheep for burnt offerings. God's accusation is not that Israel was not offering sacrifices. Right? His accusation is that those sacrifices were dishonoring to him. You have not honored me with your sacrifices. You have not satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. God's comments. Okay? Their religious ordinances, these rituals that they went through, had simply become just routine things with no meaning, if you will. Uh, they might as well have been making those offerings and sacrifices to some of the pagan gods that surrounded them. Uh, they were going through the motions without any devotion. They had no heart in this. They had grown weary of these rituals even, weary of the Lord himself. The word uh, weary here is used basically three times in these verses. Um, and the progression of the usage is, is interesting. I, I think, first of all, God says that Israel is weary of him. All right? Basically, it's evidenced by their, their offerings. Um, as you know, the, the fat of the burnt offerings were meant to be a sweet aroma to the Lord, but the fat of these sacrifices were anything but. Uh, they didn't satisfy the Lord. And he says that. The sacrifice didn't satisfy me. All right? They were not done appropriately from the heart. Let me phrase it that way. The, the second thing here about weary is God says that the offerings and worship were never intended. You know, when, when he established this worship uh, Procedure the things the things that you were doing as as an Israelite, God never intended those to be wearisome. All right, the law and the sacrificial system were meant to show Israel their sin, bring them to the point of repentance, and move them into a right relationship with the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Worship was meant to be a joyous time because of that. Right? In Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses gives directions to Israel for offerings during the Feast of Weeks, we see this idea of you know, worship being a joyful thing. 
Deuteronomy uh, 16, 10, 10, 11. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord, your God, with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Okay? This was supposed to be a joyous time. It was not supposed to be wearisome. It was not supposed to be a burden. The third weariness there uh, is when the sacrifices were allowed to become basically an end to themselves. All right? They were the thing that was important, not the Lord. That's where the Lord says, you have wearied me with your iniquities. There was a lot of religious fervor, if you will. I don't know if that's the right term or not, but religion that had no reality behind it, if you will. Um, they were assuming that they were pleasing God, but they were trying his patience, if you will. Uh, they were confident that they were right with God. They were proving that they were still in their sins by how they worshipped. Their religious fervor, if you will, had no substance. It was was just a failure. Uh, God says what he expects, what his commands demand, is not a burden. All right? Christ made that point in Matthew 11, um, 29 and 30, where it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God's basically saying that Israel's empty offerings, their continued sin, is a burden to him. He says, You burden me with your sins. What God accuses Israel of here, Judah in particular, is exactly what we see when Christ is accusing a couple of the churches in Revelation. Uh, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Uh, The church at Ephesus uh, had not yet grown weary. We don't see that of the Lord. Uh, and weary of worship. But they were like Israel here in, in one respect. They were just going through some of the motions at time. Revelation 2, 3, uh, 3 through 5 says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. All right? Don't fall into this pit. Remember where you came from. Remember what it was like. All right? 
The church at Sardis is the one you see in Revelation 3, uh, verses 1 through 3. Um, again, like Israel, they had a reputation of being religious, but Christ says they're dying quickly. Uh, Revelation 3, verses 1 through 3. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. If what we do for the Lord is not done out of a sense of love and gratitude, it's basically dead. It's basically useless. All right? The only sacrifice of value to God is the sacrifice of ourselves. All right? David captured that thought in Psalm 40. Uh, verses 6 through 8, he says, In sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. It's the attitude of the heart here that was missing for Israel, for Judah. All right. Without that, all they had was blind, mechanical, if you will, ritual. All right. Uh, a portion of Psalm 40 is captured in uh, Hebrews uh, 10, 5 through 10 as well. It says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body... Have you prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings? You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said that, when he, when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And we're all familiar with Romans 12.1. Um, our response all right, to Christ's sacrifice is to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Anything less, my contention is anything else, less would constitute burdening God with our sins and wearying him with our iniquities. All right, the complaints that he had against Judah. It would be empty worship if we don't come offering ourselves. We don't come with a heart to serve the Lord. So, God has a solution here. Uh, there's going to be mercy in judgment, if you will. 
verses 25 through 28, the last couple of verses. Uh, starts out, says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter, to utter <coughs> destruction and Israel to reviling. The remedy for Judah, for Israel's sin, the sin of profaning worship, is basically the forgiveness of sin. God, the great I am, is the only one who can. He says he will blot out their transgressions. He's the only one who can. All right? And he does so for his sake, for his glory. There's, there's a statement here that, that is intriguing as well, where God says, I will not remember your sins. Uh, I don't know. It was many, many years ago. The idea that that meant that God was having a senior moment. That's obviously not the case. Okay? The idea here is that the sins of the deemed will not be held against them because of what? Because they've already been handled. They've already been accounted for through the uh, sacrifice that Christ made through his death. And God's not going to remember those sins. Right? They've already been dealt with. They've already been handled, if you will. Uh, and he's not going to hold those sins against you. All right? You committed them. Right? Those sins have a penalty. Right? That penalty is taken on by Christ, and you are forgiven. Sin's not forgiven. You're forgiven. Okay? And so that's kind of what we see here. Uh, if we look at just kind of a crunch versus 26 through 28 together, basically we see here uh, a verdict coming out from this courtroom scene that started back in verse 8. Verse 26, the accused, Israel, is given, once again, another opportunity to establish their innocence, that you may be proved right. Verse 27, the prosecution, the Lord, states the case against Israel. You have sinned against me. And verse 28, God announces judgment. All right? Utter destruction and reviling. Okay. This courtroom scene, if you think about it, goes all the way back. Remember the first, what is it, the first five chapters of Isaiah before Isaiah's call? All right? It's kind of big chunks that get fleshed out, if you will, through the rest of Isaiah. Well, back in Isaiah 1, verses 18 and 20, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
So what we see is this is this is the situation, all right? Here's the trial. You didn't fulfill your end, right? You didn't live up to your piece. Not only Israel, if you will, but humanity as a whole uh, is going to stand before the judgment seat of God and would be proven guilty, right? Except those covered by the blood of Christ, of course. And this all goes back to the idea that the sin of your first father, your first father's sin, the things that we see here in these verses. Some commentators try to argue that Isaiah's first father was Abraham. Uh, since that's who they always talk about. We're the children of Abraham. All right. Uh, so they go back to that. In fact, they even go a little further and say that Abraham was the first of the Jews, all right, and his promised descendants basically became the nation of Israel. So that's, that's the one point they make. I, I think, obviously, from my perspective, the correct response to this we see in Romans 5, 12 through 14, where we talk about who was the original father that sinned. Right? Therefore, starting in verse 12, chapter 5 of Romans, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. We clearly see this idea that Adam, the first man, you know, the, the father figure, if you will, all right, where you see Adam as being the head of mankind, if you will, and Christ being the federal head of God's chosen people, right? You kind of see that, that distinction. We go all the way back, and that's the first, first father who sinned. Right, I think that's fairly clear, right? As opposed to just going to Abraham and stopping. So I think Adam is really the first father that's referenced here, and the mediators that transgressed against God, okay, are the ones who were responsible, all right, for being the the in between, all right, the ones who would take God's word and present it to the people, and like the Levites and the priests would take the people's sins, all right, and make atonement before God. So you have those, those folks, all right? And so the picture that we have here is not only did Adam introduce sin into the world, but those who were entrusted with God's law, those who were designated as mediators between God and his people, those in charge of the temple services, if you will, all right, continued that sin by making a mockery of worship, by turning remembrances into meaningless ritual. Judgment's coming on both. All right? The princes of the sanctuary and the nation, Jacob and Israel. A key point here, I think, is even though judgment's coming, the Lord has a much greater plan, the promise of the Messiah, right? 
He's promised to deliver his people, to redeem them, to forgive their sins, and he will. Just not yet. All right, they have to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. Their sins will be forgiven, all right, based on God's promise of this new work that he's doing. Basically, what we've seen here, I think, is that God is not going to look the other way, right? He said it had been sinned against, right? God's not going to look the other way and not judge sin, right? I think that's, that's clear. Uh, Judah has rejected God, not counting on him, not depending on him, right? Not even recognizing his past faithfulness to deliver them. So they have rejected him, and that rejection is going to cost. But it's not going to be terminal, if you will. There will be a time frame, 70 years, right? And then God will deliver them because there's a faithful remnant, and God is going to deliver that faithful remnant, all right? And he has this new work that he points to, the coming of the final deliverer, right? The Messiah. All right. Next time, next time uh, that we jump into Isaiah, um, God's going to start off by reminding them that Jacob is his servant and Israel is his chosen ones. And he's going to tell them not to fear because he's made them, he's formed them, and he will save them. Okay? Questions, comments? Yeah? I was just thinking about the principle of the human heart and of the fall of the human heart in focusing on externals and how serious that is. Um, and I was thinking of it in particular in relation to <coughs> excuse me, um, John 4, you know, with the woman at the well. The first question out of her mouth is, you're going to worship in this mountain or that. And the spiritual and truthful worship that Christ talks about. And just, in, you know, as you look around at, at, in Christendom, uh, you find all these a lot of so-called Christians in that love cathedrals and trappings mm-hmm. and all of that kind of thing and, and I know there are some very good Christians I know one for instance uh, that's not the only one I'm sure <laughs> but, but I know somebody who is very high church in her view of what delights her heart, you know. Mm. Uh, she's Anglican. And we've talked about this. And it just puzzles me to no end how that can satisfy. Puritan view was always, you know, if it isn't there, clearly in the Bible you don't do it. And it seems to me that I thought about this a lot, that anything external is potentially a stumbling block. Because, like Calvin said, we, our hearts are 
factories of idols mm. and keeps us that at arm's length potentially from God Almighty in his intimate presence with us. And this is why you know, I'm always troubled when I see going to a service or something, you know, mm. where, where there's all this extraneous mm -hmm. stuff. And people love that. I mean, they, you know, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful uh, trappings and all of that that uh, is gorgeous to watch. And to me, it's a trap. It's like it keeps God at, at arm's length, mm -hmm. potentially. I'm not saying people can't worship in that, but uh, it, it's, it's a, I believe, a real snare and part of the fallen nature of man. The simpler the better is the yeah. idea yeah. that yeah. Christ talks about. It. Yeah. It, it's the same kind of thing I think that we saw with, with Judah, right? They were going through things and they were happy, I think, probably like with what that. they were doing because we're doing everything that, you know, we were told to do, yeah. right? But to your point, if it's, not done, if it's not done with the right motive, if it's not done with the right heart, it's, it's totally useless. And it's the same thing. Am I, am I here to worship this building or I'm here to worship the Lord? Where, where's my heart? Yeah, I mean, think of the Eastern Orthodox. You know, think of all these icons and candles and smells and bells and all that kind of stuff. And they're real devotional about it. But, I mean, it's a complete system of idolatry that's very, very close to Catholicism, essentially. Any of those things that we... We will make into an idol and yeah. separate, get a little further from God, the real God, and hold our hearts away from Him. Okay, I think with that we'll uh, we'll close. You want to pray for us, Mark? Sure. <clears throat> Father God, thank you so much for allowing us to gather here. This act of worship is precious and unique. It's never been done before these words have never been put together like this and we your people stand in gratitude and humility when it comes to looking at how holy you are, how fierce your wrath is, the seriousness with which you take sin, the seriousness with which you hold your people to be obedient to your word and to sacrifice appropriately I pray that we would not just dismiss this as an Old Testament story not, not relevant to us, it is absolutely to mm. the heart of our existence today and through Christ for us. You are the same God now as you were then and you will always be the same God and your, your expectations of how we interact with you are very, very serious. So please help us to be honest and analyze our sin to look at Scripture with, with an eye towards your holiness and obedience to it. And I thank you tonight for this message. It is great. And uh, your word is perfect. And you are perfect. And I just pray now for um, all of our people that are on a bus with no air conditioning traveling back here. And I pray that you would look after them and make them comfortable as you can and keep them in good spirits and full of joy. But more than that, just safely bring them back revived and full to overflowing with the joy that comes from examining your character deeply places that they've been. 
I pray that you would bind us now together in the love of Christ because we are the body of Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.